our gracious God and Father in heaven, as we come to hear your word from Acts chapter 2, as we hear your voice, help us to hear what you are saying to us today, that we may see this event in Acts chapter 2 as not just something of the past, but for our present, for your people, for us, and for all those whom you'll call to yourself and save. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again to our series in the book of Acts as we're in this second week and in Acts chapter 2 today. As we saw in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, it's of course not just a book as your Bibles may have in the title of the Acts of the Apostles, it's a book that is about the Acts of Jesus. We saw last time, and you can go and look at that sermon from last week, it is the Acts of Jesus by His Spirit through His Apostles. And to understand the book of Acts, we understand it. It's a book that moves in these concentric circles as the gospel, the unhindered gospel, goes from, and this is Acts chapter 1 verse 8, goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and even to the end of the earth. We saw this from Acts chapter 1 verse 8 last time. Chapter 1 verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is what this book is about. This is what this series is about in term 2, 2020. As we all experience this, what you're experiencing now, this lockdown, this restriction time, isolation, self-isolation, whatever it is it's called, you know we're in it and it's kind of a little bit tiring, isn't it? It's, we're all feeling a bit weary, a bit frustrated by the fact that we have to have church like this, which is not really church, we're not really gathering in this sense, but we are the church that is sent continually out, even if it's in our homes. And so here we are, I'm looking into a camera lens, I can't see you reforming church, I can't see you, those who are friends of our church family from Bendigo and beyond, but this is what we have. And even as we have this situation, under these circumstances, under COVID-19, as we go reforming online, here's the great encouragement from the book of Acts, that what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is still happening. That the gospel is still unhindered. It's even unhindered by COVID-19. It's unhindered by the coronavirus crisis. It's unhindered by lockdown. You can't quarantine the gospel. It keeps spreading. It keeps going. And it doesn't spread to our detriment or for... Our unhealthiness, it spreads more than for our health, it spreads for our salvation. And here we see in the book of Acts the account of that spread of the unhindered gospel. As we come to Acts 2 and as Tom read that passage earlier, you may have been wondering, what does it mean for us today? There's a lot that could mean a bit, you know, what happened then, but what does it mean for us today? And there's, there's stuff here that seems tricky. What has this passage got to do for us today? What does it mean for our church, Reforming Church, and what does it mean for our region of Bendigo? That's what we're going to be looking at in this passage today in Acts chapter 2. And as we do that, looking at the acts of Jesus by His Spirit through His apostles, as we do that, it's good for us to remember where we are. And so I want to just read from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11 to see that. So we see here's the context for Acts chapter 2. This context is important. For in Acts chapter 1, verse 6... 
those early disciples, those first followers of Jesus, we see they had come together and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's that theme verse again for the whole book, verse 8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So this is going to happen. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You see this? The ascension of Jesus is really important context for Acts chapter 2. For Jesus is saying, I've got to go physically. He's physically risen. That, that's good news for us. That means somewhere in the universe is a man, is a flesh and blood, risen, resurrected, physical man, the man who is Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Lord, and he is somewhere reigning on a throne and will one day return to reign forever in us with him. And Jesus is saying here, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to go, but yet I'm always going to be with you. How? Because he, with the Father, is going to send the Spirit. He's going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to come upon you. This is something that's going to happen to you. And so here Jesus sets up the context of Acts chapter 2. Because we go to Acts chapter 2, and as Tom read, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they're all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven comes the Spirit. Now, as we come into Acts 2, I've got four uh, parts to Acts 2 I want us to see that's important for us to understand the passage, to understand the event, the episode, to then help us understand what it means for us today and what this means for us as a church and for the region of Bendigo and beyond. And that four parts, you'll see on the service sheet online if you're able to grab that, but the four parts basically is, first we see it's an extraordinary event. We'll look at the event itself. Secondly, we'll see what does it mean? And that's the first key question of two key questions that are asked in this episode. The first question is, what does this mean? And then we see the second question, which is the third part, is what shall we do? Finishing with the fourth part of this episode, looking at the devoted disciples of that time and then what that means for us. Firstly, we do see in Acts 2 what is... And it's, it's hard to have the words to describe this. It is an extraordinary event. Like it, it is, it is so strange to the first witnesses of the event. But it's not strange in that it's not unexpected. It's extraordinary, but not unexpected. On the day that it happens, of course, it's, it's known as Pentecost. Uh, we get so used to hearing that, I guess, in, in the church and our Bible reading that we just think Pentecost and we think, the Spirit, right? the Holy Spirit. But Pentecost had a context in itself, of course. It's the day of Pentecost was an Old Testament celebration. Uh, the Feast of Weeks, uh, it was celebrated 50 days after Passover. And that's just, it's a, his, it's, a, it's a historical celebratory day, kind of like an Anzac Day. It's a one-day event. And the day of Pentecost for Jews is a harvest festival. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 16 verse 9 or Leviticus 23 verse 16. It's a harvest festival day. Before it was the day that we understand the Spirit was poured out on all flesh, it's 
actually a harvest festival. And so they're, they're, they're gathered um, together in one place on this day, the day of Pentecost. And on this day, unlike any other day of Pentecost previous, is different. It's extraordinary because God pours out his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes with all the signs of God. Notice this, look at the language here in that first section from verses 1 to 13. We see that the Holy Spirit comes with all the signs that this is God. There's a rushing wind. In Hebrew, uh, the word for wind and spirit is that kind of same word. It's ruach. And in the New Testament Greek, in, in, in common Greek, uh, it's pneuma. So if you want to talk about the wind, you say pneuma. You want to talk about the spirit, it's pneuma. And so we see here is this wind, but it's kind of representing the, the spirit of God. And the second thing we see is tongues of fire. Now, if you're thinking Old Testament and you're thinking fire, what do you think? You think the presence of God. Think Moses and the, the bush that was burning yet was not consumed. It wasn't burned that's, that's the presence of God is in the fire. And so we see here the spirit, the wind, and the, the presence of God. And these tongues of fire rest on the apostles. And as they rest on the apostles particularly, it's the apostles that speak in other tongues. These other tongues, extraordinarily, are other languages. Other languages that people, that there are Jews in Jerusalem at this time in the surrounding area, and these Jews can hear in their own native tongue, in their own native heart language, they hear the mighty works of God, they say, in their own language. They hear the apostles proclaiming the gospel in a language that is native to them. We see in the book of Acts, this happens a couple of times. We see in the book of Acts the speaking of tongues or languages, as it's, as it's probably known, is, is, is seen in chapter 10, verse 46, and chapter 19, verse 6. And we see the same speaking of native tongues or foreign languages or heart languages is spoken there. You see, what's interesting is in the book of Acts, when you look at tongues, you could look at the word tongues and you could look at the word languages and they're kind of interchangeable. That's really what's going on here. It's it's not a gibberish. It's not something that is uh, totally uh, out of this world. It is a normal, worldly, human language that is spoken. Why? Because that is how the gospel is being conveyed in normal human languages so that normal human people with different languages can hear it. And it's amazing. It's extraordinary. And it's a miracle, a miracle enough that the, that the Jews with these different language groups they, they can hear it and they actually, they say to one another, aren't these guys just Galileans? Oh, they're from Galilee, right? It's a miracle. It, it's got to be because they're just uneducated men. They haven't been to language school to learn all these languages from every nation under heaven at the time. But how is it? It's a miracle. It's a sign of God's spirit. It is a sign of the apostles. Notice here at this point though, there are two responses. There are two responses in this extraordinary event leading up to verses 12 and 13. In verse 13, one response is some people mock. They mock this. They say, ah, oh, they've been drinking. Drinking new wine. They're drunk. You know, it's surprising today, I find, in church circles, where some people say in the wider church today, if only Pentecost would happen today, 
Like if we see repeated Pentecost events, then today, they say, people would be amazed, they'll believe in the signs and the wonders, and that's how we'd actually get evangelism happening. If we had more Pentecost events today, and we pray for this to happen again and again and again, then we'd see more people believe in Jesus. Is that true? Like, is that what happened that day? That everyone was absolutely convinced, without any shadow of doubt, that what was going on was something that they should then become Christians. It's not, is it? You see, there are some that mock. In fact, there's always been some that mock. It's not as if if we had all the signs and wonders happening again today, everyone would believe that is not the case. In fact, if you look in the Bible throughout the Scriptures, that happens every time. Look at, look at God's people, Israel, who are rescued out of Egypt, rescued from slavery. And we see Moses, God's servant, signs and wonders performed through this prophet. And what happens? Are all Israel then saved? Are all Israel convinced? Absolutely. Look at the signs and wonders. We would never stray from God. No, that's not true of them either. That generation saw all the signs and wonders of God and not all of them believed in God's promises. Now, we'll see in a moment, church, people on the Pentecost day didn't believe because of the signs. They didn't believe because of the signs and wonders and spectacular miracles. They believed because they heard the preaching of the gospel. That's why they believed. There's also another response, a second response. Others ask this first of the key questions. There's two key questions, and they ask this first key question, what does this mean? What does it mean? What's going on here? And so this is where Peter gets up to explain the event by preaching the gospel. This is in verses 14 to 36. The first of the two key questions are asked in this episode. And as we come to read the book of Acts, we've seen this, we said this last time, but to understand the events in the book of Acts, we need to read the speaking in the book of Acts. The the narrative explains the events. The preaching of the gospel explains what's going on around. Because Scripture interprets Scripture. We can't just take an event in Acts and say, this is what we should expect today. This event expected. No. We take an event in the book of Acts and we read it through Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so what's what Peter's doing? Peter gets up and he explains what's going on and he says, no, no, no. Brothers, fellow Jews, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's it's 9 a.m. in the morning. But this event fulfills once for all what was spoken, what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And he takes what Joel says will happen afterward in verse 17. He says, actually, this is the last days now. This is it. This is the last days. We're living in the last days now. The last days are not sometime way in the future that will come in a certain manner or form. The last days, Peter says is now. Now is the time. Now is the time of the last days. Now is the time of repentance to turn back to God. There's no second chances. There's no some sort of dispensation of time elsewhere where we can take another chance to turn back to God. Now is the time. Now is the time of the last days. The prophet Joel has said this. And now is the time, the apostle Peter says, God's spirit has been poured out once for all on all who believe in Jesus, so that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved now. 
Now, Peter knows he's preaching to Jews here, and so he quotes a lot of Scripture. And he shows from the Scriptures, he gets the Scriptures, and he shows, he reasons from the Scriptures two things. Firstly, that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, that man is the Christ. And secondly, he shows this, that Jesus is Lord. So firstly, he wants to show Jesus from the Scriptures is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Old Testament Messiah. The New Testament word for that is Christ. He is the Anointed One. He is the King. And therefore, secondly, from the Scriptures, he wants to show, therefore, Jesus then is Lord. He is Lord God of all. And so we read verse 22. Acts 2 verse 22. Many of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter's saying, you saw the signs, you know the man. Now see who he is. He is God in flesh. In Luke 24, Luke's first volume, in verse 52 at the end of that, Luke 24, 52, right at the end of that volume, Luke writes that when the disciples saw the risen Jesus, they worshipped him. Make no mistake, Jesus is not just a prophet. He is not just a son who becomes kind of like a God. No, if you want to understand Jesus rightly, you understand that he is the righteous one. He is God himself. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is to be worshipped and adored. Jesus was no charlatan. Jesus did wonders and signs. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Although Lazarus would die again to be raised finally on the last day with us all, Jesus was raised to new life, never to die again. And then we see in verse 23... At the centre of this is the cross. At the heart of the gospel is God's sovereignty and yet human responsibility. Read with me again verse 23. Look at this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. When people want to argue that we have total free will, total choice. When people want to argue and limit God's sovereignty or when they want to argue one over the other, God's sovereignty way over any responsibility on humans or human responsibility over God's sovereignty, they miss, we miss what the Scriptures hold together. And what we miss is this truth intention. Notice this. Look at this one verse. In one verse, we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility. This is what the Scriptures teach us. We see this truth intention here. Look at verse 23. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because in God's sovereignty, it was always his plan. Never a plan B. Right from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The serpent crusher would come. His heel would be bruised. That's Jesus. He is the offspring. He is the one who was to come. But at the cross, 
He would bruise. He would bruise the head. He would crush the serpent. And you see, he, that's always been God's plan. His sovereignty sees Jesus as the Saviour. And yet, at the same time, this truth is held in tension. Peter says, you are the ones who crucified him. You killed him. So whilst it was always God's plan and his sovereignty, human responsibility is under God's sovereignty, you are responsible for this. This truth and tension is so important and the Bible holds really significant truths and tension all the way through. There's a few important ones. You can't lose them. So you can't, you can't just have God's sovereignty without speaking about human responsibility underneath it. And you can't have human responsibility without God's overarching sovereignty. You've got to hold the truth and tension like a tug-of-war rope. You've got to have both there held together in truth. There's a few other truths and tension we believe in the Scriptures, isn't there? The Bible is not given to us as a systematic theology book, but it is full of systematic theology, truths and tension we need to hold together. For example, the Bible itself. Who wrote the Bible? Well, if we're thinking about apostles today, and in this book of Acts, it's the apostles who wrote the New Testament, didn't they? They, they penned it. But who was the final author? The ultimate author is God himself. It's God breathed. It's his spirit-breathed word. You've got to hold both together. You can't just have one without the other. Another one, of course, that's very important is, who is Jesus? He's a man. He's Jesus of Nazareth, Peter says in verse 22, but he's also God. He is fully God and fully man. You, you can't have one without the other. Both have to be held to hold the truth there. And so we see here, Peter preaches theologically deep truths with God's sovereignty, human responsibility, and he says in God's sovereign plan, verse 24, God has raised Jesus up. You killed him, but God has raised him up. And David's prophecies in the Psalms speak about him being God's risen Christ. So Peter quotes Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, and he shows what they know, verse 29 and following. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David who wrote those psalms, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on a throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and we're all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see this? Peter's saying that this Jesus, the man who is God, is the Christ, is the Lord, and David King David says, this king is my king. Peter says, what you all know, David's dead and buried. He, you can go and find his tomb, Peter's saying. But God had promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his descendant would reign on the throne forever, not to die again. David foresaw and spoke about the risen Christ. And Peter's saying... This explains what's happening here. You want to know what does this mean? It means this. When you see the Spirit poured out, this is the Spirit of God poured out 
because God's anointed King, the Messiah, the Christ, is now Lord, reigning at the right hand of the Father. That explains what's going on here. Only the Lord at God's right hand can send the Spirit. John 14 to 16, John chapters 14 to 16, Jesus speaks a lot about the Spirit. Jesus has ascended to God's right hand. Jesus, the Son, God the Father, together have sent the Spirit, poured out the Spirit. And here's where Peter now uses the language that Luke uses in his Gospel and in the volume, the second volume, the book of Acts, the language of certainty. You see this? Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's God's plan, always been God's plan, that Jesus is Lord and Christ. You crucified him, but that is how God's plan has been fulfilled. And you can know for certainty. Where Luke said in, in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, he writes to Theophilus, that you may know for certainty who Jesus is. Now he's saying, he writes as Peter speaks, this certainly is who Jesus is. When you see the Spirit poured out today, this is what Jesus continues to do and teach in the book of Acts. And you can see now, Peter says, you can see with certainty, verse 36, two things. Something about yourself, something about Jesus. Here's the thing about yourself. You can know with certainty, you and I are sinners. You and I are responsible for our own sin. We're sinners. And here's the second thing of certainty. Jesus is the only saviour. He's the Saviour, He's the Lord. And this moves the crowd who are listening at this time to this preaching to ask the second of the two key questions. And here it is. Do you see it there? Verse 37, the second question is this. What shall we do? How do we respond now? What shall we do? Verse 37, now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter with the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, they're cut to the heart, aren't they? Upon hearing who Jesus is and what he's done for them, they're cut to the heart. And notice this, it's not about cutting their losses. It's not about hedging their bets. They're genuinely wanting to know what to do. See, if you're looking at Christianity, Christianity is not something you just check out for a while and then add to your kind of belief systems along the way as a kind of a hobby. It's something that ought to cut you to the heart and change your whole life And if Jesus is really Lord of your life, it changes your whole lifestyle. It cuts you to the heart. It doesn't cut you on a superficial level, so you kind of cut your finger and, well, now I'm a Christian and it's kind of my tenth finger a part of my life thing. No, no, it cuts you to your very being, to your heart. It it changes everything about you inside out. It won't just change a little part of your life on perhaps a, a Sunday or once a Sunday and once a month. It changes everything on your life on a Sunday and every day. It cuts you to your very life. It changes everything about you inside out. And we see here that this is what repentance is about. Repentance is a whole turning. It's a lifestyle change. 
Repentance is the shape of the book of Acts. Remember, we've said this before in Luke's series in term one, and, and you'll see it again and again. In Luke chapter 24, verse 47 is a summary of the book of Acts. So if you go back to Luke 24, verse 46 is a summary. Luke 24, 46 is a summary of the book of Luke's gospel. And verse 47 is a summary of the book of Acts. So if you go back there, you skip past the gospel of John to find this, and we've seen this again and again. But you see here, Luke 24, verse 46, summary of Luke's gospel, thus it is written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's Luke's gospel. Verse 47 is the book of Acts. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see this? The book of Acts is repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's what we should do. And repentance is a complete turnaround. It's a turning to God by turning from your sin against Him and now turning to God with your trust in Him, with your trust in Jesus as your rescuer, as your reigning Lord. This is what we are to do. We're to repent. It's an opportunity the most wonderful opportunity you'll be ever given in your life to really see your life turn around, to really see real change in your life is to repent and trust in Jesus as your Saviour and Lord. And then Peter says, be baptised. This is a passive imperative if you're interested in words and language. What that means is repent's an imperative. You, you have to do that. You are to turn to Jesus. You are to repent. Return to God. But be baptized is a passive imperative. You're to let it happen to you. So yes, do it, but it happens to you. It's not something you particularly do. It's done to you. You can't baptize yourself. It's done as an outward sign given to you as a sign identifying with Christ and initiation into the church. It's done to you by the church. In the book of Acts, sometimes you see when people are baptised, the Spirit is given first in Acts 9 and 10, or perhaps baptism is given first in Acts 8 or Acts chapter 19. It doesn't matter particularly. It's a sign. It doesn't save you. Baptism does not save you. Jesus saves you when you repent and trust in Him. Then you are saved as the Spirit is given to you and made effective that salvation. Baptism is a sign of God's promise for the forgiveness of sins for you and your children, for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And it is the Lord God who calls people to himself. We'll see in a moment for our church and our region, this gives us great confidence. This is what we're to do. Reforming church family and friends, we are to repent, return to the Lord, Trust in Jesus. And we're to be baptised, identify with Jesus and his church. Say, I'm not of the world now, I'm of Jesus. He is my Lord and Saviour. And then we see the following in verses 40 to 41. Peter's sermon was longer than what's on record here. But he has this another passive imperative. In other words, it's, it's something that is, is done to us. He says, save yourselves. Now, it can't be uh, not a passive imperative. It can't be we save ourselves by what we do. It's a passive imperative because we save ourselves by who we turn to and trust in. He is the one that saves us. Jesus, 
the Christ Jesus the Lord. And notice this, as Peter preaches this sermon, and by and large, uh, like I am not the sermon uh, evaluator today, but mainly of my own sermons, by and large, I think sometimes it's tempting to not say to people they need to repent, to not preach repentance. But by and look at this, Peter preaches repentance. He says, you are the ones, you are the sinners who crucified Jesus even. And I think for, for us today in the 21st century, we'd hear that sermon and some of us would go, oh, we shouldn't say that, don't say that, we'd cringe a little bit. We expect that people be turned off by that kind of preaching. What happens? By the Spirit of God, by the preaching, the faithful preaching of the gospel, by actually preaching and telling people that, yes, we're sinners and Jesus is the Saviour, He's the Lord, what happens? People are saved in their thousands. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's an extraordinary event. But the gospel's extraordinary. And to preach repentance doesn't mean you turn people off, but you see people turn to Jesus and be saved. Look at that. We see in verse 41, so those who received his word, not turned off at all, received his word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The Spirit is poured out, many are saved and gathered in to become devoted disciples of Jesus. And here's what we see for us, Reforming Church, and for our region. As we want to reach our region with the good news of Jesus, with the gospel, that changes everything. Here's what we see this shapes us for our church and for our city and region. Devoted disciples follow Jesus because they have repented and trust in him and are saved. And this happens by the Spirit of God. We need Acts 2 in our Bibles to show us how the Spirit has been poured out once for all, and we need Acts 2 to show us that we can only repent, rejoice, believe in Jesus and be saved because of the Spirit of God working today. And look at how this shapes a church. There are things that the church is doing, but the things of the church that we can't do, they're kind of like passive things that happen for us. But first look what the church is doing. You see that the apostles were equipped to be eyewitnesses. That's what Jesus chooses them for and sends them for. Apostolos means sent one in Greek. And you see these, these apostles, these 12, these 12 are the ones that have been given the authority from the author himself, the author of life who is Jesus, they're the ones who given the authority to be eyewitnesses and lead the church. And it's we, the 120, the rest of them, the 3,000 there that day, the rest of them are not apostles. We are like them. We are disciples. We are the learners that follow and speak the gospel. This is important. For we see here in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see this? These are the things the church is doing. Firstly, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the early church of disciples, who are not apostles like you and I, the disciples, the, the rest of the church, the 12 apostles are there and there's the disciples. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. How do they do that? Well, they get the apostles with them. Well, that's pretty great, isn't it? As we saw last week, we don't have apostles today. Not in the same way. That's very important to see. It's misleading to call yourself an apostle in the same vein as these apostles because 
Acts chapter 1 gives us a job description for apostles, and none of us today fit that. But how can we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching today? Hmm, I wonder, where would we find the apostles' teaching? If we don't have apostles with us, where can we find the apostles' teaching? I know, here's what's great, they wrote it down. It's called the New Testament, where the Old Testament was written by the prophets of old. The New Testament prophets, the ones with authority chosen and sent, are the apostles, and they write the apostolic word, the scriptures, God's word. And here we see we can be devoted to the apostles' teaching if we are a church that is devoted to being in the Bible. For the seven years of the life of our church and going into our eighth year this year, and as we go under COVID-19 and all these restrictions, can I say as your pastor, can we say as elders, as a leadership team of small group leaders, ministry team leaders, again and again, we as a church must be characterized by being devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to the prophets' teaching, devoted to the scriptures. This is our shape, church. This is who we are. If we take the ministry of the word and make it second or third, if we neglect this, if we are not asking, what does the Bible say in every moment? If we want to make anything else or anyone else more important than Jesus or any other books or writings more important than the Scriptures, and I know we don't do this intentionally, but we can sometimes do this marginally. We just we put the Bible aside a little bit and we, just, we make that less as important as perhaps the miracles or signs we expect or perhaps desire or see. No, no, no. This is the miracle. This is where God speaks to us. This is where we hear his voice. This is the apostles' teaching. This is where we can now be devoted to it, to be shaped as Jesus' disciples. And secondly, that will shape our fellowship. You see, we're not going to love one another in fellowship, and fellowship means that shared community. Koinonia is a Greek word. We're not going to love each other and, and have that kind of community without being shaped by the Bible. You can tell people to love one another and they'll do it and it won't work beyond Wednesday unless the power is in the Spirit-filled Word working in us, teaching us to put sin to death, exhorting us to bear with one another with love, forgive one another. We're going to see lots of that in the book of Acts because the church is not perfect in the book of Acts and we're not perfect as a church. It's what we call a reforming church in many ways. We are reforming by the authoritative Word of God as it shapes us to be a fellowship. As we break bread, that third part of the church, you could look in the Scriptures and see this might mean the Lord's Supper, it might mean meals and meals ministry of sharing meals together in their homes. At times it's, it's different. At times we need to share the Lord's Supper. We see this in Acts 20 verse 7 and at times it's a shared meal like in Acts 2 verse 46 here and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. We have theologically and intentionally made sure that we're not going to be actually sharing in the Lord's Supper during this time of restrictions. Why? Well, this is a whole other teaching. I could write an article about this and I can point you in the direction of some good things on this, but here's why. We can't share in the Lord's Supper because we are not yet gathered as a church. I've seen other churches doing it and people getting their pizza and Coke out and whatever they're doing. But look, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, 
You can eat in your own homes. And this is Acts 2.46. Acts 2.46. Eat in your own homes. Have one another over for meals. And if you can't do that now, do it over Zoom. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, you come together as a church for the Lord's Supper. That's why we're not doing it. But here's the great thing we can look forward to, church. Imagine this with me. Imagine we now, yes, devoted to the apostles' teaching in the Bible, in our homes. We now, yes, longing for fellowship together again. And imagine that day we get back together as a church. When all this is over, we get back together in a church. I'm currently here in Reforming House. It's just Cameron and I. But imagine the day when it's Cameron and I, his family, my family, you, your family, all our friends. We get back together in this church and what do we do? We share in the Lord's Supper. We are devoted to the apostles' teaching. We enjoy that fellowship of face-to-face again. And we share in the Lord's Supper and we look at each other and we say, Him we remember, our Lord and Saviour, the one who saved us and gathered us. And then we go to our homes and have each other over for dinner. And we pray. We long for that day, don't we? So we pray. A prayerful church is a healthy church. A prayerful church is a healthy church. Our prayer as leaders of this church, your elders, your small group leaders, ministry team leaders, is that we would be a prayerful church. Before COVID-19 went down and we all went into our homes and places not together, we wanted to be a prayerful church and we've been wanting to have prayer meetings and perhaps a prayer meeting before the service in the morning and My prayer is that when we come back together, we'll be more prayerful. But let's start now. Let's start in our homes. Take that small step of praying with your housemates, praying with your small group on Zoom. I know it's harder. I find it harder. Praying after the service on Zoom together in those breakout rooms, those small groups, I know it's harder. I find Zoom wearying. But it helps me long for that day when we get back together and pray together face to face. But until then, pray that God hastens that day. And we see in that early church, not only do they do things, and they're the things we can do, but things are done for them. In verse 43, we see miracles, signs and wonders. And we've spoken about this in this sermon, and we'll talk about it again in the book of Acts. But I want you to notice this in verse 43, that the miracles... The wonders and signs, who are they being done through in verse 43? It's the apostles. It's the apostles that actually undertake those things. It's not the 120 disciples or the 3,000 of the whole church. It's the 12 apostles. And why? You go to 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12. We preached through this book a few years ago. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12. The apostle Paul says this, The signs of a true apostle performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. In other words, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, it's the apostles who do those signs. Why? Because the signs are uh, show their validity as apostles for their ministry. And they also point forward to this. They point forward to the gospel. Through the apostles, they point forward to, it's actually about Jesus. See, signs never point to the thing in itself. When you're driving on the road, do you see a sign for kangaroos and say, hang on, guys, got to pull over. I've just sent a kangaroo sign. Do you then pull your vehicle over and everyone get out and walk up to that sign and just look at it? 
Do you focus on the sign? No. You go way past the sign because you're looking for the real thing. That's what a sign does. The signs and wonders and miracles of the apostles are not meant to be focused upon at all. They're supposed to point to someone. We're supposed to focus on Jesus the Lord. And so these signs and wonders actually point to Jesus, who is the restorer of all things, who is the one who's working the miracle of salvation, the one who's working the wonder of seeing God's world here in the gospel, the one who has the big sign that says the cross, that sign is the sign of your salvation. The resurrection is the sign of your future hope. The gospel changes everything. Reforming church family, reforming church friends, the gospel changes everything for you. See, the book of Acts, Acts 2, is the opposite of another event in the Scriptures. It's the opposite of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 was our cross-reference reading. You'll see it on the service outline. But in Genesis 11, we see people with one language build a tower to make a name for themselves, to be powerful, to try and stretch to the heavens. And that doesn't go very well. In fact, that human enterprise that gets repeated in many ways throughout the world and throughout the ages never works. We keep trying it, but it's the folly of foolishness of sin, isn't it? But here in Acts 2, notice it's the opposite of the Tower of Babel, and yet it's the fulfilling of all that fell down with sin is being restored by Jesus, by his Spirit, through his apostles, into the church today. You see this? Acts 2 is the opposite. Because in Acts 2, the language is being united as the nations hear the gospel and are being gathered to worship not themselves, but God who has come down by his spirit to bring their face in faith to trust in him who is in heaven. And this leads to something that we can't do as a church, we can't do as a region, but happens to us. Or... It leads to awe, A-W-E, as in awesome. It leads to awe in the church and wonder in the world. Here's where we finish. This is what Acts 2 means for us. This is what our prayer is, that we would see our church filled with awe and our world filled with wonder at Jesus. See, the day of Pentecost is unrepeatable. It's a once-off day. It's like Christmas Day. We don't see the incarnation happening every year or we don't expect it to happen again, Christmas has happened. It's like Good Friday. Jesus doesn't die on a cross again and again and again. It's happened once for all. He died once for all and the Spirit has been poured out once for all. We do not, should not expect this event again. It's happened once for all. Just like the resurrection. It's a once for all time. And we see this happening sees the church have favour, that is grace. It's the same word, charis, uh, New Testament Greek word, grace with all the people. And the Lord adds to their number those who are being saved. This is the healthy church culture we pray for, that we would be a church of awe. Not just a church of fun, which is good, fun's good. Not just a church of being serious, serious is good, but a church of awe, awe of God that he is awesome. A reverent fear of God that then makes the world around us in Bendigo and beyond wonder. Or in the church and wonder in the world, that they would wonder and go, wow, 
Look at those people. Look at their Lord. People would start to ask, why? There's something in that, isn't there? And they might say, I want that too. You might be asking yourself right now, what must I do? Well, friends, today is the day for you to repent, turn, trust in Jesus and rejoice. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray now that we would repent and rejoice in Jesus' name, thanking you that your spirit your spirit poured out sees us turn back to you, sees the gospel, the good news of Jesus, change everything for us. In Jesus' name we thank you and pray. Amen.